Hey, this is Tom Adams, and I want to welcome you to the Advisory Board Insider podcast today. I, I'm really excited today because uh, you get to meet Bridget Reed, and Bridget Reed is an ESG expert. She is a sustainable finance expert with an incredible amount of history and experience, global history and experience, who also works on advisory boards. And one of the things that I think is really helpful about these conversations on the Advisory Board Insiders, I get to I get to interact with these really insightful people who have very specific focus in the world and Bridget's no different. And one of the things that, that we get to talk about today is not just her history and the experiences she had that led her to where she is now and the, the advice she gives, the consulting work she does, uh, the, the board work she does, but also to really help define terms and define terminology. And one of the cool things about these kind of conversations and the conversation I'm about to have with Bridget is you get to experience that. And I hope if you're interested in ESG and ESG is a part of the world that you're looking at, uh, sustainability is something that uh, matters to you, then Bridget's somebody that you need to know. And I hope that as you listen to her, you'll gain some great insights and uh, you will learn something as a result. So here we go. Bridget Reed, welcome to the Advisory Board Insider Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really nice to have you here. So let's start with what are your geographic coordinates today? <laughs> Good question. I'm in Baja, California, sir. So it's that kind of peninsula that pops out under California, but on the Mexican side. I think you've probably heard of Cabo. We're about an hour north of Cabo. So in a place just outside of Todos Santos. Right. And so those of us who are observing the video version of this get a sense of that just by your background. You're not in a studio. Well, you are. I think you're in a really cool studio, but it's a real studio. And I see all kinds of interesting tropical looks behind you. Yeah. Hopefully you'll see some hummingbirds come through. I can see the, the water from where I am. I'm, we are about 30 meters from the beach. So it's a pretty nice spot here. Oh, it's amazing. So let's begin with your morning drink of choice. What do you drink to start the day? Coffee. Always coffee. a coffee to get the, the day going. Would prefer, say, latte or a cappuccino, but I don't trust us making that in-house. So we just go with a mocha pot, go with a little okay. bit of and it's a And you use, the, you use the pot on top of the stove? Or yeah, which I think, it, yeah, very different to the American style coffee. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm more the Italian style coffee with the bialetti. So it's kind yeah. of like an espresso. So it's close right. to Close as you get to a homemade espresso without an espresso machine. And do you just do espresso or do you add milk to it? No, I just, uh, you know, that's a good question. In Mexico, actually, Australia has a very unique flavored milk, I would say. And I've never come across anything, any other milk around the world that is the same. So I tend to avoid milk unless I'm in Australia. Got it. So it's a, you said maca pot. I've heard it mocha pot and it depends on where you are, I guess, how you say that. But it's straight. It's kind of espresso-like because we. I have that yeah. every weekend, actually. Saturdays and Sundays, I do. I do that same iteration, but I also steam milk. But it's American milk, so it's probably not as good as Australian <laughs> not milk. Not for me. Not for me. Right. Got it. So then, let's go back before you get that coffee. What's the What's the start of your day look like? How do you How does your day unfold for you typically in a typical normal day? Not necessarily when you're traveling or something like that, but a yeah. normal day. What's it look like for you? So I've got a one year old. So my day starts with 
him waking up and me lying there for a long time, wondering whether my husband's going to get up and get get up to get him or whether it's going to be me or whether he's going to go back to sleep. So there's a, there's a 20 minute period where I'm just lying there being like, is this it? Is this my turn? Is this? The... And then um, once we get up this morning, it was my turn to get up. So I got him up, played around with him this morning, got him, got him some brekkie, had breakfast myself. And then, yeah, start, turned on the computer, handed him over to either the nanny comes or my husband's takes over and then the day starts and he typically makes the coffee. So he delivers the coffee. So that's pretty good. Beautiful. So you've, you've already disclosed some different things here. So you've already mentioned Australia and your accent doesn't sound like the average person who lives in Mexico. So I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense for anyone who doesn't know you and I really don't know you. So give me a sense of this interesting historical framework of of Australia plus Mexico yeah. plus get, give me a sense of why you are where you are and what what some of that background looks like. So I grew up in Melbourne, which is the very south of Australia. The weather, in my opinion, is atrocious for most of the year. Some is okay, but typically not great. I moved. I had a few jobs that took me to different parts of Australia, but uh, so I spent a bit of time in outback, the outback in Queensland and South Australia. But spent most of my time in. Melbourne. And then when I was working for, I used to work for a company called Jacobs, which is a big engineering consultancy. And they had a program where they sent staff to other countries, to other offices for six months period. And so I got sent across the Edinburgh office in Scotland. So yeah. I worked in the Edinburgh office. So the, the idea was it was meant to be six months and I absolutely loved it over there. And so I said to them really? at the end of six months, oh yeah, I think I'm going to stay in Scotland. They said, oh, well, that's not really how the program works. So I, I don't think we can accommodate that. And I was like, well, I'll probably like, just find another job here then. Well, that's okay, but you'll have to pay back the relocation costs. I was like, oh, I didn't see that in the contract. And my boss was like, what? I was like, yeah, that wasn't in the contract. And he was like, who wrote this contract? I, was like, I don't know, but they probably should have put that in. Um, right. So then I, they were like, fine, you can stay. So I stayed working in the Edinburgh office I was then for two years. And then, so for Jacobs, I was uh, environmental sciences. So working on environmental impact assessments for kind of large scale infrastructure projects. So rail, roads, energy, you name it. And then I moved across to finance. So I started working, I was still in Edinburgh, but started working for a company called the Green Investment Group, which is a subsidiary of Macquarie Group, which is a kind of big investor and I hung out there for another two years I think so I think we were in Edinburgh for about four years all up and this may not surprise you but the weather was fairly like challenging you, so you I, seem to have a affinity or or lack of it to weather exactly so yeah. by the end of it I was like I can't do another winter here like that it is so beautiful it is so amazing and when the weather is great it's so it, it's one of the best places in the world but the darkness and the cold and the kind yep. of constant wet. We were like, oh, we need to move. We wanted to move somewhere warm. We weren't ready to go back to Australia. My brother lives in Mexico as well. He's got two little kids and he's been here for a long time. And my husband had some kind of work opportunities. I had some potential. We both were kind of learning Spanish, but not very well. That thought we'd make the jump and move to Mexico. So then spent a few years in Guadalajara, which is the second biggest city in Mexico. And that was awesome. Absolutely loved it. But then, yeah, had a little 
little baby boy and Guadalajara is great, but it's not, it's not my ideal place to have a kid. And we can kind of, we work remotely and can work from wherever. So thought we'd move to the beach and that's how we ended up here. Oh, delightful. Delightful. Well, thank you for giving context and backdrop. And I'm going to dig into some more of that story that you told, but but let's actually go back to Melbourne, University of Melbourne, 2008, yep. if you're okay with that. You're yeah. starting a degree in environmental science. Yeah. What's happening in your life to get you to think about environmental science when you start a degree? What, uh, Tom, you're going to love this. What's so the plan? How it works in Australia is there's kind of, a, there's a book that comes out with all the university degrees and it kind of has all uh, the list of kind of majors that you can study. And there was, there was a new course that came out. It was called, uh, it was called the Bachelor of Environments. And it said that it had environmental science, it, it had zoology. And that was kind of my key focus. I told mama, I was like, I really want to do zoology. And she was like, oh, you'll never make any money in that. So there's no point in doing that. But this Bachelor of Environments had environmental science, zoology. It had engineering, it had construction. It had all of these things. And I said, okay, well, great. I can do this. I'll get my zoology hit that I wanted to explore. But also there's a few other options as well. Anyway, I signed up, started the course. And when I'd started, I went to the, um, like the subject coordinator and was like, where are all the zoology subjects? And she was like, oh, you, that's not in this course. I was like, really? Because it specifically says it. And she was like, yeah, that was a mistake. We don't, you have to do science for that. You can't do this. Wrong. I was like, I literally just started the course. Anyway, so I was like, oh, well, you can kind of, I was like, I guess I'll do six months and then see how it goes. There were environmental science subjects in there. So I was like, I'll explore the environmental science subjects and it can always change later on. But then, yeah, started environmental science stuff and yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Did a lot of engineering subject, construction subjects. It kind of was that, I'm very much a, um, what do they call it? A jack of all trades or master mm. of nothing. So I really love kind of exploring new, new topics. So continued down the environmental science path and yeah, there was two of us in the, the whole, there was like, you know. Really? There's a thousand people that do the course and there's two of us doing environmental science. Um, so it was me and another bloke who, yeah, kind of, they, they ended up stopping, they ended up stopping that environmental science major from that degree afterwards because they were like, what were these two people doing in here? We lo- I loved it. It was great. It allowed me so, to explore a lot. Yeah. So you get through that program and it's kind of a unique program, but you're getting to the end of that program. You're about to graduate. What do you, th- like, what's the world looking like to you in terms of I I know a lot of people and myself included you kind of get to the end of your college career and you go oh what do I do now like I've got this degree and a lot of people's degree never actually serves them going it it does in their own way but what what were you thinking what was kind of coming for you out of that education and embarking into the next phase of your life yeah so there are a couple of things one I think at that stage I ended up doing, I take a year off and I did a, a ski season in Aspen where I worked as a lifty and fluffed around oh. for six months and just had the time of my life. Uh, and then what else did I do that year? I think I did a bit of travel that year. And then afterwards I went back and did my master's and the master's was kind of quite similar. It's called, it's called the master's environment and it's kind of policy, project management, legal, did a lot of environmental legal subjects, and then also more environmental, more specific environmental subjects as well. Again, really broad course, which allowed me to kind of explore whatever I thought was interesting. But yeah, I had this, this huge, like, oh, what the hell am I going to do with this? Like I've had right. now like five years of just doing what I think is interesting. All my other mates were doing, you know, environmental engineering or a very specific thing. 
And at the end of it, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to apply for all of the degrees. I mean, sorry, all of the, the jobs out there that I thought were interesting. And all my friends were applying for the same ones, but it was quite interesting because I was one of the few people that did environmental science and did this kind of broad, this broad masters. I'd had a very different offering than all, all my mates that say did a very specific thing who, you know, there was like, you know, a hundred of them that did the same thing, but there was only two or three of us. So right. I ended up getting all these great opportunities. So the first one was I did kind of a short-term contract with BHV Billiton, which was an interesting one. I never thought I'd end up in mining and I've done my three months stint. I probably won't do it again, but it was very interesting and it was an incredible opportunity. I ended up in, it's called Olympic Dam and it's a uranium, predominantly uranium, but they also do copper, iron and silver and it's an underground mine and they also have a processing plant. And just to give you a context of scale, the underground component, so the underground mine, at that point had more roads than Adelaide, which is like a major, a major city. Yeah. I think it's got a one million, a population of one million. The oh underground component had more, like longer stretches of road than it did in the thing. Like it was absolutely monstrous. Like it was absolutely huge. And so what are you doing there? I mean, obviously you're coming from the perspective of an environmental this expertise that you have, but what, what are, what are you doing day to day? in Yeah. That so they had a fairly stringent environmental program there because obviously they're a huge a monumental risk. So they're kind of a regulated industry. So they had a lot of government oversight and a lot of stringent rules in terms of the environmental component. So the key task that I was doing, we did an environmental fauna survey, which basically meant that we we're going out and collecting, setting up traps to collect all these species of animals to figure out that they were doing, I think they had a, they, about a 10 or 20 year fauna program. So every year they'd go out and they'd track, you know, what, what animals are here this year? What animals, how big mm. are they? What, what sex are they? And they, they had a, a really long-term study to represent, to, to see what the changes were over that time. So that was a really cool program um, to get involved in. I was doing a lot of auditing in terms of hydro, I was specifically doing a hydrocarbon audit. So going around and that was awesome. It sounds so boring, but it was actually so fun because I, it meant that I got to go to every single part of the mine. So mm. unlike a lot of other people in the mine, you kind of get access to one specific right. area, but because the risks and the safety risks are so high, you have to do a day induction for every single area you go to. And mm. mostly what I learned was there is literally a million different ways you can die in all of these circumstances. Oh. So, um, so you're, you're, you're kind of doing auditing, but at the same time, you're experiencing a lot of interesting perspective. Oh, on yeah. This. yeah. It's like, you know, like every place you go to, you've got to be like, this is an extremely high risk site. This is what you need to be aware of. This is what happens if you're not all aware of those things. And the whole time mm. I was like, this is incredible. How do people, like, how did, like, this is people's careers that they do the whole time. And it's just like, you walk into a very high risk site every single day. And the risks yeah. are huge, but like if you manage them effectively, and I guess there was probably something that I took, I have taken through the rest of life. You can work in, there, there can be really high risks and really, but if you manage those risks and put those kind of the right controls in place, you can manage them really effectively. So yeah, I was doing hydrocarbon orbits, which, it, which basically means I was going around and seeing whether the oil, there was oil spills or petrol spills and figuring out whether or not they had appropriate controls in place to manage those, those issues. 
And then just general environmental kind of things, training on environmental, training people on environmental issues. If there are environmental incidences, so, you know, a big spill or a fauna death. So for example, like if there was a, a kangaroo that got hit by a car, we'd go out and check it out and have to document it and sort of like report it, make sure it's all. And, and so that was kind of my key task. It was fascinating. It was a, yeah. it was a wild time, but yeah, really, really interesting. And so you said that was short term. That was a contract. Yeah. So you get that experience. Where do you go next? What's the next evolution of the journey? Yeah. So then, so that was a short term contract with the idea was that they were planning to roll out, extend the contract, but then they had massive cuts on the, on the site. So the permanent position got cut, which I was extremely glad about because I didn't really want to go. I, I didn't really want to continue. Like it was an incredible experience, but it, it wasn't where I really wanted to be. So I then it started working for an engineering consultancy. And again, very lucky because I was still fairly junior at that stage, but then ended up having extremely unique experience. So I applied for a hundred different roles, got off at a few and found this company that I was like, oh, these guys are quite interesting. So I started working for a company that were originally called SKM and then they got taken over by Jacobs, which is a, a big American okay. firm. Yep. And that was awesome. Again, a lot really had the opportunity to do heaps of different things, which is kind of what I think is really crucial when you're quite junior to experience almost everything. I got to work in, you know, lots of different types of projects, but I also got to work with a lot of different specialists. So Mm. they have hundreds and hundreds of different specialists that most people would never understand the name of. You know, they've got like ornithologists that specialize in birds. They've got a whole historical team that specializes in different parts of, you know, cultural heritage or archaeology or those sort of things. But then you've got the technical side as well. So I was working with a lot of electrical engineers or kind of mm. very specific uh, skill sets. And I was working in what was called most, a lot of the stuff I did was environmental impact assessments, which is just become basically fundamental to my, my experience and my expertise. And that is basically, for those that don't know, I'd say any time that you want to build something, whether mm-hmm. it's a large piece of infrastructure or a kind of or a small construction site, I guess, you typically have to get an environmental approval from right. the local government or the federal or the state, depending on how big it is. And the bigger you get, the more complex those environmental assessments come. So the ones that I, working on, I was working on were huge, huge ones. So kind of like, you know, state defining or country defining kind of infrastructure projects. And once you get to that big, once they get that big, the environmental assessments are extremely, extremely complex. So, so one of the main ones that I worked on for, I think it was a year or so, was a huge train tunnel, a rail tunnel underneath Melbourne city. And then it was five different new train stations. So it was basically a gigantic tunnel underneath the city. And so my role was helping to coordinate all the environmental specialists to produce that environmental impact assessment. So it's a unique position and unique skill set to be in because basically you need to have a good enough understanding of all the different components, but you don't have to be the expert. You just need to be the person that asks, that knows enough to ask the right questions. Right. And so what sounds, what I'm hearing is this history of sort of not being a specialist allows you to become the generalist who knows how to put all the specialists together. Exactly. And originally I thought that was like a, was my weakness. I originally thought it was my weakness. And I remember speaking to one of my old um, kind of mentors about it. And I was like, you know, I don't have a specialty. And he was like, no, your specialty 
is the fact that you don't have a specialty. You yes. really need to work with that. And in the beginning, I was like, oh, I don't really, I don't really get it. But now I'm like, it's left me in a really, really good position where I can work across basically right. all environmental and social areas without being a specialist in one, but knowing enough to provide fairly solid advice and knowing enough to know when I don't know. And I think that's right. one of the crucial things that a lot of people don't, it, it is missing in kind of the environmental and social and the sustainability gain. A lot of people think that they're specialists in an area and maybe go f- far beyond what their capabilities are. But I think my special, like one of my strengths is the fact that I've got, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I know to, who to ask when I don't know. So right. a lot of the stuff I say now is like, you can't actually figure that out. We can't figure that out at the moment with this level of information. We need to go and speak to this type of person. So Got let's it. go and appoint yeah. them and then they can provide us with more advice to make an informed decision. So when I was reviewing your LinkedIn profile, I noticed that there's that kind of work and then you move into investment areas. So green investment ratings, green investment group. Tell me a little bit about the move from just being the generalist who's who's doing more of the environmental impact, the study, the the kind of policy stuff. But then there's this part of you that's got this investment background, and I'm really intrigued by that addition. Yeah, so that was the green investment. I'll give you a bit of background on it. It started with the UK. They were originally called the, U- the UK Green Investment Bank, and it was a public bank government set up. It operated as a private entity, but essentially it was using public money to invest in, basically the idea was to give confidence and instill confidence in the green infrastructure space. So mm. renewable energies, renewable energy was one of the major ones. And they, they made a huge difference. They kind of, I would say, were a huge pioneer of the, the offshore wind industry, which is now obviously huge, but the UK is one of the leaders in that and I would say probably fundamental for instilling enough kind of confidence in the industry to make it investable. And so what they did, because they were government owned, they had a huge emphasis on making sure that everything they invested in had a sound environmental and social impact and all the risk mm. were managed and that they was, there was a really solid framework in place. So unlike, I guess, a lot of what happens now, they went out and they hired environmental specialists to sit within the bank to run that team and establish the processes. So okay. when I got hired, the team was environmental consultants and they were environmental specialists, which, is, which was unheard of within the banking industry at that time. And I think, yeah, one of the reasons that I got hired was the fact that I wasn't a specialist in one particular area, but I was very good at communicating, um, mm. which is essential when you're moving into, I guess, the finance space, because it came as a big shock when I got there to, to figure out the level of understanding of the environmental and social risks or issues and how I guess little there was and probably still is particularly in some areas but I'd come from an engineering consultancy where environmental you know issues were that that was our bread and butter that's what we spoke about and then we got into I got into finance and I was like oh we need to consider you know the environmental risk of this and then being like oh okay I don't really understand what that means I don't understand 70% of the words that you've used in that thing in, in that sentence, and I'd be like, oh, okay. You know, we'd be talking about like, so we were, a lot of the stuff was looking at originally, we'd looked at a lot of offshore wind things, offshore wind turbines, for example, who have a massive risk of colliding, to give a very practical example, colliding with birds. So the birds fly through and they get mm. hit by the turbines. Yep. 
And I'd be like, oh, yeah, so I think we'd probably have to do um, bird strike modelling to figure out, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, so what does a bird have to do with what we're talking about here? Oh, okay. And how does this fit into the investment, you know, the business yeah. case? Yeah, I'd be like, okay. So there was a huge financial, sorry, there was a huge kind of, for me, a huge learning in terms of like, okay, really need to bake, take it back to basics here and have no assumed knowledge. So I think, I think that's one of the key challenges with communicating particularly when we come into the environmental and social aspects the level of understanding by a lot of people is kind of very basic and why would they know that like a lot of it's very technical stuff which yeah they don't come across in their everyday you know if you're an accountant or a financial model or an investment banker you don't you don't come across this in your everyday life so why would you know about it and then right. now it's kind of this environmental and social aspects of pushing their way into the financial sector yeah, so, there's a huge education piece there. So were you doing a lot of the education then? So of the investment group, and then you have these specialists in the bank. Are you also then having to translate that for the investment side? Is is that part of what you're doing? Yeah, a little bit. So basically what our fundamental role was, every time they, they had a very strict, I would call it a sustainable investment policy that was defined by the government, essentially. They had, they called them green pillars. But basically every investment that they made had to align with these very specific set of environmental and social criterias. And so our job was make, to make sure that whatever they were investing in aligned with that criteria. Right. And that's where kind of those, those conversations would come out because you have, there's a couple of kind of key things to consider here when you're looking at the investment space. It's one, does that, the investment align with that sustainability policy now? And two, will it align with that in the future? So mm. there's a few things where like you assess it with what it looks like now, but you know, if you're buying a company, what's to say next year, you don't just change the, the pivot, the type of company and you do something completely right. different. So it's about embedding kind of the environmental and social criteria into the way that the, the, the transaction is structured to make sure that that business remain or that project remains green into the future. That it. it will continue to align with your sustainable investment policy. Got it. So you've got this very broad background. A lot of you, you are a generalist. You, you also then add this layer of investments into it and the ability to speak in terms of that. And then it, it appears to me you go into what looks more like a portfolio career where you have a whole bunch of different things happening. So what made the decision to go out of being sort of an employee type of person into more consultant? It seems yeah. like that's the role you're playing. And that that looks like in around 2020 that started to happen. So you've got a whole bunch of concurrent roles showing up. Tell me a little bit about the move from this focus to sort of a, a more consultative focus. Yeah, I think, and you know what, this probably comes, you've probably picked this up through the, um, what I've kind of like previously been saying, but I'm very much a person who is like, okay, I'll put myself out there for any opportunity and see what comes yeah. back and then capitalize on that. So I moved to Mexico with the grand intention of working for this company and it didn't work out. So I ended up in Mexico, not knowing the language, not having a visa, not knowing really anything and being like, well, what am I going to do here? <laughs> and then I had, I told one of my, you know, I'm leaving the bank, uh, I'm moving to Mexico. And she said, oh, we are going to start your own business. I said, absolutely not. I, I don't think that's for me. I've never really thought about that. She was like, really? Because I've got all these projects in Mexico and I think you'd be great at it and I need somebody to do it. And I was like, oh, I'll get back to you. And then an old colleague called me and she said, 
what are you doing now? I said, oh, I don't really know. I was just trying to figure it out. She said, why don't you, um, why don't you join my company? We can go in this together. It's just me. You and I can go in this together. Uh, we can work together and build this thing. And I was like, okay, so I've got a ready-made company, a good brand, a good business partner, and a paying client, somebody that's like, I will give you this project. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'll just do it for the moment and see how it went, how it goes. And I started and it's just, yeah, it ended up being really, really great. So a lot of the, my original projects and kind of one of the key things I offer now is this ESG due diligence service. So where financial, where investors are looking to purchase, say a lot of the stuff I do is in solar, but looking to purchase an asset in another country. And typically the people I work with have stringent sustainable investment policies. So my job is to check whether that acquisition, whether that asset aligns with their environmental, mm. social and or the sustainability sustainability policy. And kind of in, in a lot of them are in emerging markets. So it's making sure that they align with international standards. So I went down that path and then got to this point where you kind of own your own business and you're like, well, I've got so much flexibility to do whatever I want. So which is also, which you probably saw on my LinkedIn, is where I've ended up starting Frontiera as well. So this is with another business partner and their specialty is GIS or Earth Observation or kind of like satellite technology. And we were, we're yeah, very close. And I, I basically was talking about all the, like I've got a good understanding of what they do, what the GIS capabilities are, because I used to work with them quite closely when I was mm. working in the engineering consultancy. And I was like, there is a massive need for this within the financial sector. Like the, a lot of the environmental kind of assessment or management approaches, they when you're dealing on large portfolio with large portfolios, you don't have the ability to. So, for example, half of what I do is like looking very closely at very specific environmental problems, but you can't do that if you had, you know, if you're th- thinking about inquiring, you know, a hundred different assets. You don't have the ability to go through in detail, which is where this GIS, the satellite data kind of piece, fits in. So on that kind of large scale environmental management mm. and assessment, you need that satellite tech, that data analysis to do it on a, on a global scale. So he and I came together with the idea of rolling this out. And originally, yeah, his specialty was deforestation. And I was like, these banks need to be looking at one. There's all this legislation coming out now saying that um, you can't. So for example, in the UK or the EU, or there's a couple of states in the US as well, they're implementing rules that legislation that says you can't import products that have been derived from deforestation. So you can't import an avocado that has come from deforested land. Uh, Like none of these banks are doing this. The financial industry literally have no idea. All these legislation's coming in, but they don't, they don't have the capability. They don't have the service providers to do it. And so we went down this deforestation path and it turns out nobody was really interested in deforestation. (laughs) It's like... I think there will be eventually. I was like, this is um, ridiculous. Like, anyway, but um, it didn't really, basically, there's not a market for it yet. I think there will be soon. It will, yeah. But then we developed this brand, we developed the tech, we developed all these products, and then a thing called the Task Force for Nature-Related Disclosures started getting talked about. And this was beyond deforestation. This was nature in general. So this is biodiversity, a component of this deforestation. It's, you know, protected area. It's like biodiversity hotspots. It's water. And it's like, we looked at it and we're like, oh, this is exactly what we're doing. They've just called it something different. And the focus is, our focus is on deforestation and we reported all the other stuff. Whereas this is 
they're reporting all the other stuff, but deforestation is just kind of thing. And so we looked at it and we're like, oh, this is what we're doing. And now everyone's really interested in it. So that's where I'm kind of at now. It's kind of building this business around what's called the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures and offering that to mostly financial institutions, but also corporates. Got it. So we now have a context of this history and the work you're doing. Let's let's move over just a little bit into some terminology because I think this is helpful. I, I think terminology is often full of a, a lot of diverse meaning. And the two that you've raised are ESG and sustainability yep. or sustainable finance. And I just want to, can you clarify what those two terms mean to you in light of the perspective that you bring to them? Because yeah. I, I think that's really helpful because so often I, it's like you said earlier, people throw around the terms, but they don't even know what they're talking about. You yeah. know what you're talking about. So what what do those terms mean to you and how do they uniquely intersect for you? Yeah. And I, yeah, I think it's an excellent question because as you've said, I think a lot of people use these terms, but the meaning has become lost or confused yes. along the way. And I think there are some fundamental difference, but as you've said, there's a lot of crossover. So essentially for me, ESG or environmental, social and governance, it's a, it's a risk management approach. It, it originated, I think. It originated within the financial sector, this kind of concept of ESG. I think it originally was coined in a UN paper called Who Cares Wins, which describes the link between ESG and business success. So ESG ultimately and fundamentally, I think is a, it's a risk management approach that considers environmental social risks of a business or a transaction or a project. So it considers, you know, environmental risks that associated with, say, water, if we're mm. looking at environment, water, climate change, deforestation, biodiversity. We're looking at social risks. You've got the external social risks, like what impact is your product, your business having on this community or this protected group of people, this Indigenous group of people. And then you also, from the social perspective as well, it's kind of like what risks are associated with the people that work for you. So internally, mm. a lot of people, I think when we look at the social component of ESG, a lot of companies focus on that internal component, which is like, you know, what's happening with my workers, how many jobs am I offering, you know, what quality of their condition, the condition of work, which is really important. And that kind of external social one that I previously previously mentioned about like what impact is our product or our right. project having on the community is often right. lost. And then the government governance risks as well. So governance is around how is the project, the business actually run. It looks at things such as tax issues, anti-corruption and bribery issues. And I would say uh, like how the board is run, is it an independent company, right. that sort of thing. I would say that is fairly well from a governance perspective. That's been around for a long time. Yep. That's, yep. There are fairly in, entrenched legislation around that already. Environmental is growing. There's kind of really co core focus on it at the moment. And there's environmental legislation out there. That social side is still, I would say, in its infancy, it's getting there. Mm. There's a big focus on it, but we're still, I would say, we've spent kind of the last 10 years trying to figure out what is the social goal for us. Then we have like the UN SDGs, for example, the UN Sustainable Development Goals kind of defined what we want to get. And now we're trying to figure out how we actually get there. So so how does ESG then tie to, because you've, you've connected the dot, but how does ESG tie to sustainability? Yeah, so... Well, if we go back to original sustainable finance, yeah. I would say sustainable finance, on the other hand, is about shifting capital away. So shifting money away from actions or products or activities that result 
an environmental or socially negative impact ah, and no. towards you want to shift that capital towards environmentally or socially positive outcomes. Mm. And so for that, for me, sits within the financial sector mostly. And at the moment, that's this sustainable finance piece is kind of, that's about kind of incremental change that's happening within banks or investment companies or financial institutions in general. But ultimately, sustainable finance is like this, the ultimate goal is transform, transformational change where the financial system ends up, yeah, completely shifting so that it's not, it's no longer called sustainable finance. It's just the way finance operates. It's the way right. that we're, we're then funneling all our capital towards things mm. that we want, things that have really positive impacts. And the, the interconnectedness there is the fact that ESG forms a fundamental component of sustainable finance. So to assess and kind of figure out, manage the risks of sustainable finance or finance in general or projects, it's doing that ESG component, which ends up assessing and managing the environmental and social risks so that you can sort of like recognize, you can manage, and you can ultimately shift away. You can ultimately figure out what's positive, what's negative, and how do we get to that kind of more positive angle. Got but yeah, there's, there's kind of a lot of confusion. Yeah, no, but it, but I think it's really helpful to, to, to clarify that because because when when you get that sense of it, then that helps me to understand how you process it with a client. But but maybe to help me just one more step or help us as we listen to you, can you give us an example of how that translates either from a client of yours that you're comfortable sharing or an example that we might, it might help us to be aware of the example of ESG in a specific thing that then affects capital and how capital moves towards a better outcome, a more sustainable outcome versus a, a one that's not. And, and do you have an example of that that you've worked on that you're aware of that you could share with us? Yeah, for sure. So if we think about an investor that invests in renewable energy, so ultimately the idea is that they're putting capital into renewable energy, which right. ultimately leads into positive outcomes versus the alternatives. And that, I guess you could say they're working in sustainable finance because they're putting money into that. But a component of that, to make sure that what they're investing in aligns with our positive, what we think is positive, they do an ESG assessment. So we do ESG due diligence. So my role is doing the ESG due diligence on that, them acquiring a specific asset. So what I would do is I would go through and I'd assess all the environmental and social and governance risks. So they're purchasing a solar farm, yep. but is the solar farm located in the right place? Have, is that solar farm in a protected area? Have they built it on agricultural land? Have they built it on, you know, is it, is it situated on an Indigenous community? Is it, is it within a community that's going to have massive impacts to their, you know, I, I probably don't want to live directly adjacent to a, um, a solar farm. So right. it's about identifying the specific environmental and social governance risks with that specific acquisition. And then part of it, when I do this, unlike, so if we take water, for example, like a fairly easy one is water. If, has it got good drainage? No, you probably need to put drainage in. Otherwise, you're going to fl flood, you know, the protected area next door. As part of that, you're probably going to have to put in a hundred or like, let's say $10,000 to put in specific drainage. And then that comes back to the financial aspect. So when they then go to purchase the the asset, you're like, okay, well, I know that I need to put $50,000 worth of uh, environmental controls in. Mm. So I will factor that in when I offer, when I make my offer of purchase, I'll subtract $50,000 because I know that I'm going to have to put $50,000 into it. it. 
So the ESG component is managing yes. the risks, but the sustainable finance thing is the whole, is basically the whole transaction. Got it. Okay. That, that helps immensely. Good. So let's, let's go into more of the topic of this podcast, which the topic is you, but in all of this perspective, but how do you see the adoption of ESG and the risk around that in advisory board worlds? I know you've been involved in advisory in the advisory board space for a while, but, but is there a hunger for a strategic person sitting on a board related to ESG this ESG risk, thinking about sustainable finance, is it, are you seeing a hunger for it? Yeah, massively. There's a few different elements to that. One is the huge, I would say, one of the key drivers is the how rapidly it's happened, which has come about because of, say, le legislation and regulation. So there's a huge amount of, um, like, there's a tidal wave of regulation right. coming in, particularly in Europe, and that is slowly going across the rest of the world, but in particularly in some regions, there's really strong legislation coming in and in other regions, they're talking right. about it. And it's basically lifting the whole industry up. So even though say most of the legislation's coming in Europe, you still feel the effects of it in say Australia and yeah. the US. So the legislation piece is huge. The consumer awareness piece and the shareholder action piece has become really huge as well. So we're seeing that translate into product choices or shareholder action whereby, you know, there's some really great examples in the past where, you know, Shell, for example, they now have, there was a massive shareholder action campaign whereby they've ended up electing to the board of directors. I think there's maybe four of them now, which are climate actives that they're called like activists. They're board members that are, wow. you know, yeah. So first, for some of the largest uh, fossil fuel companies, they now have climate change activists that are sitting on their board. So this climate change, the, the kind of shareholder pressure and the consumer pressure has resulted in, you know, a massive shift as well. And, and then we have kind of industry just picking up on that. And you have industry leaders kind of like, or maybe not industry leaders, but large businesses acting on that. So you have all these companies coming out saying, oh, we're going to be net zero. We're going to be this. We're going to be that. And because these large companies have said it, it's created this competition oh, in the marketplace yeah. and kind of raised the industry standard. And because of this massive shift, which has happened so quickly, there are a lot of companies out there that are like, I don't even know what ESG right. means. How right. the hell am I meant to respond to this? So they, there's a massive shift into people being like, okay, we need to set up, say, an advisory board or we need to get specialist help in this because, you know, I've got a, we, we have a client who, a great example is they've, they say um, they were printing like the Disney or Pixar, like images onto like pencil cases and backpacks and that sort of thing. And then they, they came and said, um, we need help because the licensors, the licensors, the people that own right. the pictures have come to us and said, we're only issuing the licenses to those people that can meet the sustainable mm. investment standards. And then they also had their distributors, so the, the shops that they stock in, they, the shops came back to them and said, we're only stocking products that meet these environmental assessment standards. So, and then there was another one. So basically, and their consumers, and all of, they were getting all these different pressures. They also had legislation that said, you need to report against this. And they were like, yeah, so um, we've just realized that we can no longer operate. Like as of next year, we won't be able to sell to any of these. We won't have the product to print um, and we won't be able to meet this legislation. So we really need assistance. Now, so these sort of companies 
are setting up advisory boards to help them through those challenges. Yeah. And you're seeing it based on your unique view of the world. You're seeing that sort of come from just like large shell oil kind of companies down into people who are building and creating product and selling product in the marketplace. It's starting to actually uh, become more ubiquitous, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I would say there's a, it's very geographically dependent. Mm. I would say in kind of the uh, developed economies, like say, if we look at Europe, look at Australia, the US, we're talking about them, that that is happening across the economy. So you have larger businesses and you've got medium-sized businesses and smaller businesses that are really getting on board this because they're like, they're really experiencing those pressures. But if you get into, say, emerging markets or, say, if we look at Mexico, for example, I would say that that is only happening at, the say, the top 20% of businesses. Your larger businesses are experiencing yeah. those pressures, but the, the smaller, kind of the 80% of the, you know, because like Mexico, for yeah. example, is, most of the economy is made up by very small businesses. Oh, right. right. They, don't have, they don't experience those same pressures. Yeah. So it's very much geographically dependent. But I would say that those kind of key developed countries are going through that and they all need, they're all seeking ESG or sustainability support. And so when they need it, say in an advisory board structure, are they tending to want it more as a short-term project where you get us up to speed and then help us across the finish line or get started? Or is it more they need somebody sitting on a perpetual seat continually reminding of that or is it a little bit of both depending on the size of the business so typically the way it works is the the original piece of work is that that first one short term and they're like oh we just need help with this we're just going to roll out an ESG strategy and then we'll be done and right. then we always find that at the end of that they go actually this is a lot bigger than we thought it would be this is actually a lot more complex so I think we're actually going to either have to hire someone or keep the advisory board going mm. for a longer term. So ultimately we see success, particularly from the, um, from my consulting perspective, we see success is when they recognize that they probably need to hire someone full time because it's, it, it's not just one project. If for it to be successful and managed effectively, it, it is a long-term process. So the advisory board role typically ends up being, you know, a few years at least till they yeah. get it yeah. fully embedded. So I, I know that you're you're involved in this. And so when you personally sit on an advisory board, what's the what's the unique angle that you're bringing? Obviously, this unique history. But if you're sitting on a project advisory board that's kind of set up to get this started and moving in a company, does it go back to your former days of being a generalist and knowing how to pull the right people together and put them related to this project? Or are you bringing now a different perspective to it than maybe just purely historical, which is that generalist? Are you bringing more of of the, let me call you the village elder? Like, are you bringing that kind of, like, I, I'm, I'm just interested in, in what that unique role you play on the board might be. Yeah. So I think it ends up being a bit of both because the kind of historic experience that I have means that I'm able to point out risks, but mm -hmm. the kind of village elder approach is goes beyond that to the point where it's like, where it's um, being able to provide kind of strategic advice on how best to manage that risk or how mm. best to set up the system to manage that risk. Ultimately, at the end of the day, these guys know their company better than I do. 
Yeah. So it's about, as you said, kind of leveraging the right people within the organization and figuring out who should be doing it and assigning kind of responsibilities to the people that already exist in there. A really good example is Net Zero. Lots of companies committed to it. They've gone out publicly and said it, but the kind of the, the thinking piece has not been done. It's like, okay, so you've thought, you've committed to it, but have you thought about how you're going to do it and who within the business is going to do it and what, what steps do you need to take to get to that point? And so it's about sitting, sitting down with them and saying, okay, well, let's look at the business. Who have you got working for you? Who, what resources do you have? Whose responsibility is what? And how can they assist to achieve your net zero goal? And that kind of thinking and helping them along the way to, to navigate that path is kind of one of the key, the key things. Got it. So just help me there because you used a term that may, like I, I talk to CEOs all the time. This is part of what I do. And I'm not even sure what net zero means. I, I oh, heard such a good point, isn't how it? you explained it. And so what's net zero? Yeah. So it's a, it's a good question. And another one of those terms that people keep whipping out without knowing exactly what right. it means. But basically a company should get to the point where they are no longer producing emissions and where they're uh, so carbon emissions, for example, yep. and what, where the challenge is and where the confusion comes from is net zero. So when you look at emissions, there's scope one or two or three emissions. Scope one is like the emissions that you get from the power that's coming, that you, your company uses. So are you using renewable energy? Are you using a coal-fired power point? What emissions are coming out of that? And then you've got scope two, which is kind of a secondary thing. So it's like, okay, my employee drives to work. What emissions right. are coming out of that car when they drive to work? Got and then the scope yep. three, which is where the really complicated comes when things come in. It's like, okay, so I have this product. What emissions are my users of that product? What emissions are associated with them using the product? And that part is at this stage really, really hard for a lot of industries. So when you look at this net zero thing, are we talking about scope one? Are we just talking about, okay, I've got, I've committed to going net zero. Does that mean I just only need uh, renewable energy and then I've, I'm done? Is that scope two? So it means that all of my, all of my employees will now be coming to work bye-bye. Or is it scope three where I'm, I'm making sure that the product that I have doesn't have any associated emissions. So let's think about like packaging, for example, mm -hmm. like the, does my customer have the opportunity to take the waste and turn it into something else really useful? Like, a, right. I don't know. So going back to how you explained it then, part of having experts advise you if you're in this position is I want to be net zero, but you don't even know those three scopes and you don't even often know what you're talking about when you claim a net zero status or you claim a net zero goal or plan. Yeah. So often our first advice, often the first step when I sit on one of these boards is, okay, net zero, that sounds great. Um, now, where are your emissions coming from and how much do you know how much you're emitting? They're like, oh, we haven't done, we, we need to figure that out. Mm. Like, okay. Well, step one, let's figure out what your actual carbon emissions are. And then step two is we can start figuring out what are we going to do about those carbon emissions. But a lot of companies, a lot of companies have committed to going net zero, but haven't done step one. So they're like, yeah, we're going to get rid of all carbon emissions and say, oh, okay. Very, very ambitious. I love it. So, yeah, so helpful. 
let's let's imagine a CEO comes to you. They they happen to hear this conversation and they come to you and say, I need to do something with ESG and the risk associated with that because I'm recognizing that there is some laws coming um, that are now going to affect me or I've got clients of mine who are demanding it. From either an advice perspective or an advisory board structure, what recommendations would you give a CEO who came to you with this concern? What what would what would the first steps be? Good question. It would be first of all, well, what resources do you have in house? Because then that would inform whether or not you'd set up an advisory board or whether you'd have to do say like a consulting project. Because if they already have a fairly good structure. Mm in place and they've got resources available, then you could set up an advisory board and you say, okay, we can look at the problem that you've, the challenge that you've got, and we can figure out how within the resources that you've already got, we can approach that. Maybe you do need still external consultancies and external consultants, but that's a fairly, if you've got some good resources and you've got a good setup in place already, then we can start by setting up an advisory board, breaking it down and figuring it out kind of in-house, kind of at that. I would say the kind of the governance level in terms of yep. working yep. with them. But then if you've got, if the problem is, you know, I look at the organization and I'm like, oh, wow, you don't like, there, there's not a lot of capability or capacity within this organization to address the issue. Then maybe you'd go down that kind of appointing a consultant route to do the kind of the groundwork. And then later on, you can set up that advisory board when you've actually got enough information to figure out what needs to be done. Okay. So, so it's really, you've got to do the groundwork really to get some degree of stability before even potentially an advisory board can support you with that. It sounds like. Yeah, I would say that for sure. So, I mean, if we go back to this net zero issue, that first step of saying, okay, well, have you done your carbon accounting? Do you know where your carbon emissions are? Let's do that first. Appoint an account consultant to figure that out first and then afterwards we can set up an advisory board to figure out how you'd you'd actually respond to that within the business but at the moment you're going in not really knowing anything you don't have enough information to make it yeah because the advisory board's going to say the same thing right an advisory board or that structure is going to say well what's what's the reality what's the data that we're working from yeah 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 but if you've done that that first component you can set up the advisory board in a better manner and kind of with a clearer structure if you've got yeah. the information to feed to them first. So good. Well, this has been really helpful. And I mean, I, I feel like you've illuminated even my thinking on so much of this. And I feel like uh, I'm I'm always trying to learn, but so many things you've said today are things that that I feel like I need help with. So thank you for that. <laughs> I, I, I always like to end with, you know, we start with getting to know you personally, and then I'd like to end with just some fun extra questions. So uh, I'm just going to throw some fast questions at you. You can answer them or not answer them, but just just give me a sense of your answer to this. So are, are Mac or PC? Mac. Okay. My Mac is 10 years old, just, and that is why I still managed to run. I do have a new one, but I still managed to run two businesses off a Mac. And I don't think that's a possibility with a PC. You know, right. a new PC every two years. Right. How would your closest family members likely define, and let's say you said your brother, I think you said your brother lives in Mexico uh, with you. How would he define what you do in the world? Oh, such a good question. Because <laughs> most people don't understand it. Oh, that's a good question. Um, how would he define what I do? I think he would say I help companies become more sustainable and work something to do with financial institutions as well, making them become more sustainable too. Got it. Okay. What book has shaped you more than any other book? Oh, 
Yeah, that's a um, yeah, it's a really hard question. Just mostly because I've just finished a book and I can't stop thinking. I just finished a book called Still Life. Um, and, and that Still Life is about what? Is that a fiction or nonfiction? It's a fiction book, and it's about um, it basically follows the the story of um, these two people, and one of them ends up living in Italy, and that's shaped my life because I've drunk a lot more wine since reading it because. <laughs> Every kind of scene is like, eh, they sit down for a bottle of wine because they're in Italy. God, have you used ChatGPT? And if you have, what was the first question you asked it? Oh, yes, I have. The first question I asked, I think it was, how do I get a police check in Mexico? <laughs> gives you very, I needed to get one done for a, a project I'm working on. And it gives you very detailed, it's my go-to about how do I do this? And it's like, go to this website, click on that link download this file, fill that form in, take it to this office located at this place. Excellent. Wonderful. Uh, and final question, what's your favorite web or phone app that gives you the highest return on your investment? Is there an app that you use that gives you really good stuff? Um, I mean, it's just the news apps. I spend okay. a lot of time on the news apps. Does it give me good return for my investment? I mean, probably the time, the costs. I used to get the Bloomberg app. I don't get it anymore, but I actually think I probably will get back get back into it. But yeah, probably the news apps. Is there it's any a very boring answer for you? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's great because everybody every everybody has a unique one that that they tend to love and spend a lot of time on. So that's fabulous. Well, I have to say this has been delightful, Bridget. It's uh, really good to get to know you, your perspective, your way of thinking about the world. All of this unique history that you have, this generalist environmental stuff that led into finance that's leading you to be a significant advisor in the ESG space and uh, as it relates to uh, sustainable finance. And so thank you for being with us today on the podcast and continued success. We'll make sure all of your links are, are listed. Any final words from you? If you're not already thinking about ESG or sustainability, get into it. It seems very overwhelming. And a lot of people think it's very expensive, but that is not the case in my, in my opinion. I think it's more about sustainability ends up being basically the cheapest way to operate. So get in touch if you need a, if you need a hand. Beautiful. Thank you again so much. And uh, we, will, uh, we will enjoy uh, watching what happens as you, uh, as you continue your practice. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tom. Enjoy the rest of your day. 